Um, we've been talking about contemplative practice, contemplative prayer, if you will. But really, life in a contemplative attitude is really the better way to put it. You know, this isn't a diet. This isn't a, a way to lose weight fast. This isn't a way to gain spiritually quickly. This is a, a total lifestyle change. It is a change from the ground up, from the inside out, and, uh, and really changing every aspect of the way that we deal with life, the attitude with which we approach life, this is what contemplation is really all about. It changes everything. A contemplative practice, as I mentioned last week and have mentioned many times, is the second of two pillars that the effect is resting on. The first is coming to Jesus from a first century Hebrew point of view, from that context, from that understanding that changes everything about his message in terms of, of its, if its direction and in terms of if its import. And then secondly is contemplative practice. Because when you do read Jesus from a first century Jewish point of view, you realize he was a contemplative. He's a mystic. He was someone who approaches God directly in pure being and not through intellect. And so to actually practice that is what this is all about. To learn what we need to learn intellectually that will show us the import of actually practicing a contemplative lifestyle. And so that's what we've been doing for the last several months, is building the case that hopefully will get you to realize that this is important enough to put the effort and the time into moving your life into a contemplative direction. Now, contemplation is really nothing more really than the building of awareness. Building awareness. Because without awareness, there is no possibility of presence. And without presence, then there's no possibility of connection, really connecting with each other and with God. And so awareness is the ticket in the door. It is the door, if we can become aware. So awareness is the key. But as we were talking about last week, we typically think of awareness as merely self-awareness, awareness of ourselves as an individual being, thinking of ourselves, thinking of awareness of ourselves, but if we're thinking about something, then we've already moved away from it. If we're thinking about something, we're removed from it. We are separated from it. Just as we look at a picture in a frame, we can appreciate it. You can really love it. We can be moved by it. But we're not in it. We're still looking at it as subject and object. But the beauty is that we can be aware of something without thinking about it. And that's what we are trying to develop in ourselves, in contemplative practice. The ability to be aware of something, but without thinking about it, without naming it in our heads, without putting words around it, without putting edges around it, that constrains it and conforms it to our preconceived notion of things. That's what we do when we name something. We are now understanding it through the filter of our own worldview. And to let something speak for itself, especially something as big as God, is something as big as just a, a personal human relationship. It needs to be unconstrained by our judgments, our preconceptions. Contemplative practice is teaching us how to do that. How do we approach life hyper-aware, present, but without thinking about it? That puts it into a different place. So if you think about it, really, awareness is a state of being fully connected to the moment. A state of being that is fully connected to the moment. And the moment, we have to understand, is the sum of all that we are. The moment is the sum of everything that we have. This moment right now is everything. Anything outside those doors doesn't exist for us. And any future that we imagine for ourselves, any outcome that we desire so greatly that it's directing every step of our day doesn't exist here in this room. This moment is the sum of everything that we are and everything that we have. And these people around us are the most important people in your lives right now because they're here and because you are here. To be fully connected to everything that you are and everything that you have without thinking about it that removes you is the whole point of contemplative practice. It's the point of contemplative prayer. That's why Jesus prays the way he does, and we're going to read a little bit more about that. But that's the whole key here. 
What separates us from the moment that we're in, whatever moment that happens to be, and everything that we have and are in that moment is our mind and our body. It's the thoughts that we have and it's the feelings and emotions that we have. Those things are so strong. They so scream for our identity, for our attention as identity. It's who we are. Right? Descartes, I think, therefore I am. What I think is who I am. Well, actually, it's the opposite of that. He was coming from a certain point of view. We are, therefore we think. But who are we then if we're not our thoughts? Who are we if we're not our emotions, everything that we feel? It's a part of us. It's showing us a deeper part of ourselves that resides below consciousness. But who are we really? So what separates us are those thoughts, are those feelings, are those emotions. And contemplation is teaching us how to step aside from everything in us that separates us from our moments and from everything that we are and everything that we have. Now, this is not to say that we repress our thoughts or our emotions. It's not to say that we ignore them because you all know that's dangerous. That can cause all sorts of problems. We need to fully feel our emotions and we need our thoughts. But what we want to do is to be aware of them again without thinking about them. To have the ability to reconnect with our moments and everyone in them, everyone who shares our moments, while still in human form. As long as we're in human form, we're going to have thoughts and feelings and emotions, right? And we need them. That's what makes us human. That's what allows us to survive. But if we are enveloped in them, then we're not connected anymore. We want to reconnect while still breathing in human form. That's what contemplation is teaching us how to do. Now, this doesn't mean that your mind is going to be quiet in there. You know, there's a saying in, in, uh, in AA that your mind is a bad neighborhood. You need to get out of it. Yeah. The mind is not necessarily a bad neighborhood, but your thoughts can certainly be toxic, right? That doesn't mean that you're going to have no thoughts, that your mind is going to be completely quiet. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to be feeling anything because the emotions are still going to be coursing through you. Of course, as long as we're breathing, this is going to happen. But to develop the capability, the capacity, not to let your mind think about those thoughts, think about those feelings, to be able to not allow them to separate us from the moment, to rise above them and still be connected, even though we're aware, that's what we're talking about. Now, this may seem like a really subtle distinction, and it is in concept, but it's huge in experience. When you have experienced this, the difference is everything. Until you experience it, it's a fine distinction that we're trying to make. But if you just show up to contemplation, if you show up to the program that you set for yourself, over time you will experience that difference. And when you have, then it's going to make all the difference. Now, what are the, the tools of contemplation we're talking about? We're kind of you know, circling around the edge here. And it's things that you know about and have heard about. It's primarily meditation or centering prayer or what's called prayer of the heart from ancient Christian times, a wordless prayer of just heartful connection and mindfulness, taking what we learn in meditation of stepping away from the thoughts and the feelings in such a way that we can be connected and taking that into our day where we're not thinking about nothing but just thinking about one thing, the thing that we're actually doing at the moment. That's mindfulness. Now, there are many other tools that we can use as well, but they are only as good as they are done meditatively and mindfully. So those are the two cores of the tools, but there's lots of different tools that we're going to be discussing, not today, but soon. So where do we begin? How do we begin to start to develop not necessarily a program of contemplation, but a contemplative attitude toward life? How do we integrate it into our everyday lives so that we are becoming this thing that we call contemplation? We are becoming this thing that we call awareness without thinking about it. Well, there's a great story that I know many of you have already heard, but just to be on the same page, and because for some of you, yes, my jokes are still new, let me tell the story again. Right? 
It comes from the ancient desert fathers and mothers from the 3rd and 4th century. This is the beginning of the monastic movement. And the reason the whole monastic movement started, why men and women fled out of the cities, especially of the eastern Mediterranean, into the deserts of Egypt and Judea and, and, and Arabia, was because this was exactly the time that the Christian church was being aligned with Roman power. It's when Constantine declared religious toleration in the empire in 313, I think it was, the Edict of Milan. And by the end of the century, Christianity was the state religion of Rome and now wielded all the power took all the pagan temples and turned them into churches, took all the pagan priests and told them you become Christian or you die or you have to leave and we'll confiscate all your goods. Now Christianity had the power. Now Christianity was an institution. Now Christianity was a political force. And these purists, these men and women, said this doesn't make any sense to us anymore. We don't know what we're doing anymore. And so they fled out into the silence and the solitude of the desert to try to refine what it meant for them to be a follower of Jesus. And the stories that they leave us are beautiful in their simplicity and they're beautiful in their practical nature. And so in this story, a young monk, a young, a young acolyte, goes to the elder and says, what must I do to get closer to God? So the elder says, you want to get closer to God? All right. I want you to go to the cemetery and insult the dead. Okay. So he goes to the cemetery, and he's yelling at headstones, right? He comes back. The elder says, did you go to the cemetery? Yes. Did you insult the dead? Yes. Did they respond to you? Well, no. Okay, I want you to go back to the cemetery, and I want you to praise the dead. So he dutifully goes, and he comes back. Did you go to the cemetery? Yes. Did you praise the dead? Yes. Did they respond to you? No. When you can respond to the insults and praises of men the way the dead do, now you're becoming closer to God. There's another story that's kind of like it, where the acolyte goes to the master, and the master tells him, in order for you to advance, every time someone insults you, I want you to pay them. I want you to pay for their insults every time. And he did this for three years solid, paying for every insult that someone gave him. At the end of that time, the master said, okay, I think you're ready. You can go to Athens now. You can go to Greece and you can uh, start to learn about wisdom. And so he goes to the city and at the gate, there is a wise man who sits there insulting everybody who enters. And he just bursts out laughing. And the wise man says, why are you laughing? He says, because for three years I've been paying for this and now you're giving it to me for free. <laughs> and the wise man says, enter the city. It's all yours. <laughs> See, in the ancient times, in our, in our own ancient tradition, there was the virtue of unoffendability and unflatterability. Those were like the highest virtues, to become unoffendable, to become unflatterable. And we've lost that. We've lost that completely. They were talking about growing an interior space within ourselves where contentment, where meaning and purpose and identity don't depend on external circumstances. They don't depend on the opinions of others, either positive or negative. We don't find our meaning and purpose and identity there, but from a deeper place within, a deeper place that can't be named. See, that's the most difficult thing about our real identity. That's the most difficult thing about this presence we seek. We can't name it because as soon as we name it, we've stepped away from it. We're not going to find it out there. We're not going to find it in our thoughts. We're going to find it in the real-time experience of our presence. So we've lost even the concept of valuing these ancient values of unoffendability and unflatterability. We've made a virtue actually out of being offended, if you think about it, haven't we? What's this cancel culture all about? Ostracizing people and, and cutting them off because they offend some sensibility. They offend what you think. But we do it in all different directions. The church has been doing it for millennia. You, you don't have an orthodox theology? <laughs> We're offended. You're blaspheming. You're out of here. We do it to each other all the time. But at least the ancient church understood we needed to get to this place. We don't even think that we're supposed to get there anymore. We count our 
offense, we count our anger, we count the, the, the resentment and the grudges that we hold as virtue, as righteous, because these people are wrong and we're right. It's got the whole thing and turned it upside down. We're right back to where the Pharisees were. The Pharisees actually taught their people, you do not forgive anyone until they have made amends, made restitution, until they have apologized to you. You hold what they call the serpent in your heart. You hold on to that resentment until these conditions have been met. And Jesus fought against that tooth and nail. He said, no, you forgive. Seventy times, seven times. Numerically, symbolically, that means forever and a day. It means we never stop forgiving. It means we love the enemy. And so we're right back, and maybe we never left. It's just more, I don't know, in your face now because of social media. But we've lost that concept. We've lost what this is really about. And the self-worth that we feel, especially our young people, which is really frightening, their identity and meaning is now really measured in social media likes. We get our self-worth out of internet metrics, if you want to think about it that way, so much. In the age of the selfie, right? And you know that there are over 93 million selfies that are uploaded every single day? Think about that. 93 million selfies are uploaded to the internet every single day. So that tells you that our self-worth, our view of ourselves, is always and ever measured in external circumstances and in the opinions of others. We've codified that now into our culture and into our social media experience. This feedback that we constantly need, these likes that validate us, and it's exhausting and it's self-defeating. And there are so many, and the, the suicide weight among our young people is growing because they can't find themselves in the image that is projected in media, and especially social media, of successful people, people who are actually making it, people who matter, and the rest don't. So how are we going to turn this around? Very small children can't even think of themselves as separate from another. Their brains haven't developed the, the potential yet, the ability yet, to be able to think in terms of self-awareness. They haven't yet eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, if you want to take a look at it that way. Because as soon as they do, the Lord said to Adam and Eve, on that day that you eat from this tree, you shall surely die. And they did. They died to the unity and the connection that they had before. And the rest of their lives were going to be spent seeing themselves as separate and other in competition with because of the way that the mind works. And so our whole adult lives now are about getting back to the garden, getting back to that place of connection. But now this time with a conscious choice because we are adults and we can't unring that bell. But to choose it, to be able to, again, enter into connection in human form Aware, but not thinking about it, is the whole goal of what we're trying to do and what Jesus is trying to get us to do as an intentional free choice, to love as an expression of this presence, this connection, again, in human form. And of course, there needs to be a balance. As long as we're breathing here, we've got to be able to think. We've got to be able to use our minds to do what our minds do. And what do our minds do? They categorize, they plan, they distinguish, they calculate, they judge. They're able to think abstractly about past and future. We need to be able to use those as a tool to be able to live our lives and do what we need to do, not only to survive, but to take care of those who depend on us. But what Jesus is trying to do is to get us to be able to do all those things, use our minds in the way that they're intended, but liberated from the illusion that that mind, that voice that speaks to us in our head, is our identity. It is who we are, because it's not. And we're going to still need our emotions, as we said, to show us that deeper place in us. Emotions show us what's going on in the, in the unconscious that we can't access directly. Things that we don't realize are actually driving our bus, our thought and behavior patterns. Our emotions give us a window into that. We need that. But can we use them? free 
from the emotions triggering us into dysfunctional thought and behavior patterns. When we can do that, then I suppose psychologists would say we have regulated our emotions, but we're able to feel them without thinking about them at any given moment so that we can choose what is best for everyone who will be affected by our decisions. Contemplative awareness is the key to all of this, to the contentment and the stress-free presence that we all say we want, even as we continue to cling to this egoic noise in our minds, this pressure that we put on ourselves to accomplish certain outcomes without which our life is going to be unsuccessful or some sort of failure. We all say that this is what we want. We want that contentment. We want that stress-free presence. But how do we do it? To build an awareness that we're talking about, we need to create a contrast because our minds are all-encompassing. We're inside of them. We think that this is all there is. We think this is reality. But if we can create a contrast for that activity of our mind, just like we put a light object on a dark background to set it off or the opposite, we need to create a contrast, a background, on which we can start to see how our minds and our emotions really work, what they're doing and how they're doing it. This is the whole key be able to see our minds and emotions for what they are so that we can use them correctly, but we can still find ourselves at the same time. How do we do this? We've talked about this before, some of us. The four S's. Y'all remember the four S's? Anybody remember the four S's? Okay. This joke might be new, too, for some of you. Four S's. Silence, solitude, stillness, simplicity. Those four have been revered as highest virtue by every responsible tradition, faith tradition, philosophic tradition, for as long as we've been running around on this planet. Except not ours right now so much anymore. <laughs> we don't, we're uncomfortable with silence. We're uncomfortable with solitude. Even if you're an introvert, you know, if you're an introvert, how much of your solitude is really alone or do you spend it still on social media, still with the television or the radio? How much of, of us, even if we say that we like to be alone, are really practicing silence and solitude, let alone letting that distill down into some sort of stillness, letting that create simplicity in our lives? It is not a value that our culture in any way embraces. And so we're going to have to be salmon swimming upstream if we really want to start to bring these four S's into our lives. So we can see how our minds work, our emotions work, and how they drive our focus and create that. So let's just take them one at a time, and let's just talk a little bit more about that, because I think if we can start to see these are the principles that contemplative practice is trying to help us instill in our lives. But before we get to the actual practices themselves, the formal practices, let's talk about the principles that underlie them. So silence. First of all, we need to understand, silence is not just the absence of sound. It's much more than that. But the absence of physical sound, turning things off in your life, can be a great starting point. But not just the absence of sound, but the absence of thinking about the noise that is present in your life, both in your head, the constant thought that is spinning there, and in the external environment, whatever is going on. We cannot think about that even though it's present. Like we said before, your mind is not going to be quiet. Trying to quiet your mind is probably an impossibility. I've never achieved it. But what we can do is not think about the thoughts that we are aware of or the sounds around us that we are aware of. Imagine that we're having this conversation one-on-one -on -one at uh, lunch or dinner in a crowded restaurant. And we're sitting across the table and we're looking right into each other's eyes and we're having this conversation. And we're aware of all the buzz of all the other conversations that are going on in the restaurant. We hear the laughter that sticks out above that, that hum. We hear the music that's coming down from the ceiling. We hear the clatter of silverware and plates. 
But it doesn't break our eye contact. It doesn't break our conversation. We are still focused on each other until the waiter drops the tray of dishes and then everybody turns and claps for him, right? That is the way it works. Or you're sitting reading a book at an open window in a second-story apartment, and you hear all the sounds of the street below, the cars and the horns and the people shouting, but it doesn't break your concentration as you read the book. Classically, you're sitting on the side of a river, and you're watching all of the things that are floating down the river, but you don't pick anyone out. You're just aware of them moving, but you let them go. You don't grab anyone and hang on to it. This is what it's like to start to experience contemplative silence. It is not just the absence of sound. It is the decision and the discipline not to think about it. And when you realize that you have, to let it go again, let it continue to just float downstream. Now we can start, as I said, with cultivating actual silence. When you get in the car, do you compulsively turn on the radio? Maybe you leave it off. When you're home, is the TV always playing in the background or the radio? Can you turn it off? Is there always something playing on your iPad? Can you turn it off? Can you start to create actual silence in the environment around you, in your moments during the day, whatever they happen to be? If you have small children, can you duct tape them? (laughs) Just kidding. Don't call CPS on me here. But start someplace with cultivating silence in your home. And what you're going to notice is you're going to detox. It's going to be like stopping drinking. You know, it's going to be coming out your pores. It's going to make you jumpy. It's going to make you irritable. It's going to make you strange because you are so used to this and you don't even realize how much you are. Or you don't realize how uncomfortable you are with silence. You know, when you have a a conversation, or maybe when I'm speaking, if I leave too much of a gap between sentences, don't you start to twitch a little bit? Okay, is he having a stroke? What's going on now? we, We have this compulsion to want to jump in and fill every space. We can't just honor silence and let it be and realize that the only way that a word has any meaning is that if it comes from silence and returns to silence, just like a musical note is really defined by the silence before it and after it, the rest before and after that frames the note. We need silence and equal balance with the noise, with the sound, in order for anything to be intelligible. So here we are trying to establish some physical silence and learning to love it, learning to become comfortable with it. And of course, silence goes hand in hand with solitude. It's a lot easier to be silent when you're alone, but it's developing that attitude of silence that we carry with us wherever we go, no matter how noisy the environment. It's almost like an astronaut in a pressure suit carries his or her environment around wherever they go into space. Can we create silence that is internal, that we now carry around with us wherever we go, even if it's into the noisiest of environments? Let's take a look at Matthew 6, starting at verse 6. And here's Jesus teaching us how to pray. But listen to the way he does it. This is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. Close your door. And pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This whole teaching is in contrast to what the Pharisees especially were doing and what the culture that they created was doing, which is at the set times of prayer, three times during the day, they would go to the busiest street corner in the middle of the marketplace and all the noise, and then they would stand and they would do their prayers so that they could be seen and everybody could see how holy they were. And other cultures used phrase after phrase and all this repetition that Jesus says, I want you to do exactly the opposite of that. Retreat. And this is both physical and it's also symbolic as well. Physically, go to a place in your house. Typically, it was at the roof. They had flat roofs. That was a place where they could go and be alone, and that was their prayer time. Some of the Judean homes actually had small rooms that were prayer rooms, the prayer closet, if you will. Go in there, shut the door, but also go into your interior space and shut the door. Go into that place. Don't be focusing outward. Come back inward. 
Bring it in. Bring it in. Stop using words. Your father already knows everything you're going to say before you say it. It's human to say it. Okay, say it, but say it short. And then let it go. Just be. Find that place of presence. We've said over and over in here, God's native language has to be silence. What else can it be? You want to speak to God with no loss in translation? Learn to speak silence. Be comfortable with silence. That's what's going to make all the difference in the world. Now, hand in hand with silence is solitude. Now, solitude needs to be understood not just just being alone, but being alone with God. That is, alone with presence, capital P. Having a sense of connection with that presence, with the presence of another here in this room, with the presence of God if you are alone, but a real sense of being a part of something greater than yourself, connected to that thing that is greater than yourself. Now, you may think that this will be easier for an introvert. And if there are any extroverts out there, how hard is this going to be to be alone, right? You know, for the introvert, yeah, it might be easier to be physically alone than for the extrovert. But when it comes to this interior presence we're talking about, it's just as hard for everyone. The introvert has no leg up on the extrovert because the introvert actually may have a more active mind in terms of constantly spinning on things. The introverts I know, and I'm one of them, you know, the interior life is louder than the exterior life. That's why we like to be alone and we like to retreat to that. It's comforting to be in the midst of all of that stuff, our stories, our music, whatever happens inside our heads. It can be really difficult to be solitude from that, to step away from that. And so this idea of solitude, again, it's about this interior sense of connection that's going to be just as hard for every one of us to be able to develop because we have to let go of all of that activity. we got to practice it. There's very few of us for whom this comes naturally. Maybe some. I don't know who they are. And I don't want to hear about it. (laughs) It's like that line from that movie. What if your real life exceeds your dreams? The answer, keep it to yourself. (laughs) Got to practice it. Almost every one of us has. And even someone who intuitively can go there to come back and intentionally then learn the technique so that they can be repeatable about it. It doesn't just happen when the mood strikes them or when the stars align, but they actually are doing it in a repeatable way as necessary. That's what we're talking about here, to become comfortable being alone. Take a look. There are so many verses and so many scenes in the Gospels where Jesus is seeking solitude. I just picked, what, five here? just to give you just a taste of what's going on. But take a look at Luke 5, verse 16. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke is telling us he did this all the time. Maybe he drove his friends crazy because he was always absconding. He was always getting out of Dodge. But he did this all the time. And when things got really difficult, when the crowd was really pressing, when he was totally exhausted, maybe frustrated, then he did it even more. He had to get away. He had to go to that silent place and just be again, not use words. Mark 135, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Matthew 14, 23, after Jesus had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was still there, alone. You can also find that in Mark 6. John 7:10. after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then Jesus also went up, not publicly, but in private. So if you understand this, he's in Galilee. He's 90 miles north of Jerusalem, as the crow flies. And it's his feast, one of the, the three pilgrimage festivals. And so all of the, the disciples, all his followers, they go off to Jerusalem and he hangs back. But then he follows them sometime later in private. That means he's walking basically 90 miles by himself. Probably took him four or five days 
to get to Jerusalem. Imagine the solitude. Imagine the silence, just walking by himself, sleeping under the stars. Life was lived in ancient times, especially for impoverished people, so differently than we can even imagine in a culture and a technology like ours. But to have to walk everywhere you went at four miles an hour, how do you see the scenery differently than you do at 70 miles an hour on the freeway behind your air-conditioned windows? See, everything is different at this point. And here he is experiencing this. And the next one as well. Matthew 15, 29, when Jesus went, Jesus went from there. Where is there? It was from Tyre and Sidon. This is right on the coastline of what's now Lebanon, 40 miles from the Sea of Galilee, 40 miles from Capernaum, which was Jesus' home. You know, we often think Jesus didn't have a home because he said he didn't have a place to rest his head. That's not what he meant there. That was figurative. He did have a home. He might have even had an actual house. It might have been where Mary was still living and he was still taking care of his family after his time away in the wilderness. But that was 40 miles away from the coast of Lebanon, south, down, southeast, down into the Sea of Galilee. Again, 40 miles, walking by himself. Jesus went from there and walked to the sea, beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down. He was always doing this. This is just, it's just the frosting. This is just the tip of the iceberg. But this is Jesus' contemplative practice. This is who he was. This is how he connected deeply. And this is what he's teaching us to do as well. Then we move into stillness. Stillness is not just the absence of activity. It's detachment from busyness. Now, we don't even realize how addicted we are to busyness. It's a compulsive need that we have. It's an identification with activity that we have and we don't realize. Have you ever just gotten sick for a while? I mean, hi, Nina. Having to stay home and not do some of these things, it's just, it's making her crazy. You know, now, too much is too much, obviously. But how many of us, if we just stop, you know, Marion always talks about, we went to uh, Hawaii for our 20th, and it's getting to be a long time. We were there for eight days. It literally took me three days, three or four days. Now she's saying no, it took me four days. Half the time we were there was me detoxing and just being okay with that level, that lower level of activity with nothing really to do. It was a big island. There's not that much to do. Now, I learned to love it in the back four days, but it took me a while I had, to, I had to actually detox from all of that. We don't even realize the level of busyness that we are living under. And we don't realize the compulsive need for activity, that we will find things to do, that we will start to go a little bit stir-crazy if we don't have things to do. Can we start to detach from that? And even deeper, we are identified with that activity, with that accomplishment, with that performance. That's who we are. It's how we derive our meaning and purpose. Can we start to detach from that as well? Because we think our purpose comes from doing and performing and accomplishing, and we're afraid to stop because then who are we if we're not doing this stuff? Can we start to learn to be comfortable with being still outside in our activities, right? In preparation for the internal emotional regulation Because stillness is also stillness for everything that we're feeling and all those roiling emotions that are constantly going on in us. Can we start to still that storm that is in us? At times it's worse, at times it's less. But there is a baseline to that emotional angst often in our lives, that tension that we constantly feel, that anxiety. Can we start to still that as well? Can we find a new identity, not in accomplishment, not in connection with all of that stuff, but just in the moment itself, just being here now, doing nothing productive perhaps, but still feel just as strongly that we are part of this greater thing, that everything in this moment, everything that we have and everything that we are and God's presence in the moment is enough. This is what we're talking about. Take a look at uh, Luke 6, starting at verse 37. Jesus says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. 
They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Okay, now this doesn't necessarily seem like stillness right off the bat, right? But I want you to take a look at it this, this way. Is what Jesus says in that first line literally true? If we don't judge, we will not be judged. If we don't condemn, we will not be condemned. If we pardon, we will be pardoned. What if I'm a really non-judgmental, non-condemning, and forgiving serial killer? Do I still get the benefit of all of that? See, what Jesus is really talking about here is an internal quality, not a literal external one. He's talking about quieting and stilling all those inner offenses. He's talking about unoffendability again, right? Unflatterability that we started with. He's talking about stilling those emotional triggers that will trigger us to judge and condemn and to not forgive others because of the way that we're feeling. And we think those emotions are real. We think those are the ones we're supposed to act on. Can you still that? As we judge and condemn and refuse to pardon or forgive, as we hold a grudge, as we hold on to anger and resentment, so are we judged and condemned not by God. That is the reality that we have to endure. The reality we believe is the reality we endure. And if we believe that judgment and condemnation and lack of forgiveness is the way that we are supposed to move forward in life, then that is what we are going to experience in life. It's up to us. We can only experience what the interior level of stillness that we have developed, the attitude that we have developed will allow us to experience. But if we can move beyond that, then Jesus says, in this great line here, they will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Any idea what he's talking about there? You know what dry measures? Ever made a cake? And you have to have a cup of flour? Okay? So you pour the flour into the measuring cup, and it goes to the top. But if you shake it, then it drops because it's getting all the air out of it. Or maybe you just hit the side of the cup, strike it, and then it goes down a little bit. Or maybe you take really just the bull by the horns and you just press it down, okay? So you can get some more in there. And then sometimes you you can have a level cup or you can have a heaping cup. You can even put more on top of it. See, when you were buying dry goods in the marketplace and you had a measuring cup that they were going to fill, as soon as they filled it, it was to the top, what are you going to do? You're going to shake it, and then you're going to get a little bit more. You're going to press it down, you're going to get a little bit more, and then you're going to heap it on the top before you leave. It's all the same price, right? And this is what Jesus is talking about. This measure that you're going to get, if you can change your attitude, if you can live a life that is really and truly non-judgmental from the inside out, that you don't see people in that way, then your measure is going to be all of those things. It's going to be shaken, not stirred. It's going to be struck. It's going to be pressed down. It's going to be heaped on. That's the measure that you get out of life. And of course, they understood all of that because that was in their daily experience every time they went to the store. And all of these together can bring us to simplicity. In fact, all of these have taken us a long way already to simplicity. But simplicity itself is not just the absence of complexity. It's a letting go of the need, the interior need, for specific circumstances, opinions, feedback, or possessions to validate us, to show us who we are, to give us a sense of meaning in life. We don't need those anymore. Simplicity is detaching, separating ourselves from that need to see ourselves in that way, defined by our possessions, which is literally the definition of mammon, mammonas. The possessions that we heap up in our life that come to define us, can we separate from that? Now, it's easiest to begin Simplicity by simply purging your home and your closet, right? Go through and get rid of all the stuff that you haven't touched in two years. Thinning the herd, creating some simplicity there. But then that's only in preparation, just like silence, for moving inward. Like I said, much of this has already been accomplished by the first three S's, but what are we still attached to? 
If you have been active in trying to establish silence and solitude and stillness in your life, you've got a long way toward establishing simplicity as well. There's no way that you can't. But what are you still attached to? What is still left that you're connected to? What is still driving our mind at night to keep us planning, to keep us calculating? And how much of that is really necessary? Some of it is. We've all got to live. We've got things that we need to deal with, sometimes more at one time than another. But how much is really necessary? Just take a look at this last passage. 1 Timothy 6, starting at verse 6. But godliness is actually a means of great gain. In other words, it's its own wealth when accompanied by contentment. And godliness is one of those words that doesn't do a heck of a lot for us. But think about purity of intent. Think about being integrated in your intention. Jesus would call it being pure of heart. Maybe think about holiness, where your, your, your desires are set aside for a specific purpose. One of the, the interesting words, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Only begotten in Aramaic, Ihidaya. We think of it as being the only born of the, of the parent. But Ihidaya literally means the son of unity. It means being completely integrated inside to outside. That would be the idea here. If you can be completely integrated, if your purity of heart, if your focus on what is really good in life, meaningful in life, that gives you a sense of identity in life, is such then it is its own wealth in and of itself. It's, it's, it's its own gain in and of itself. He continues, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Not money itself, notice. It's the love of money. It's that adulteration of that purity of heart, that realizing where true wealth lies. Jesus said, put your treasure in heaven, you know, where moth and rust doesn't destroy and thieves and robbers don't take. You know, put your, put your trust there. Put your treasure there. Same thing here. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. To complicate life is to create all of these diversions, these lack of simplicity in terms of our desire and what we see as being able to make us content. So even before we begin any formal meditation, even before you begin any formal mindfulness practice, or maybe in addition to the mindfulness and the meditation that you already have in place, the four S's are where are going to set us this foundation, this platform for everything that is going to follow. And the goal, of course, is balance, to balance the now and the not yet to still work for the not yet, work for the outcome we need, work to, to right the wrongs that we see around us and improve the things that need to be proven, improven, but never at the expense of this moment right now, that we can be completely content in this moment as it is and as it presents, even as we work hard, sincerely hard, for what we want to be changed. It's just like Brother Lawrence was saying. We don't need to invent all of these artificial ways at God, if we just do the things that we do all day long in silence and solitude and stillness and simplicity, our lives will be transformed even before we're aware of the transformation. I wanted to end with two little short more stories and see if they bring something home. This one, Ernest Hemingway, the author of the classic The Old Man in the Sea and many other novels, went from moments of harsh physical activity to periods of total inactivity. Before sitting to write pages of a new novel, he'd spend hours peeling oranges and gazing into the fire. One morning, a reporter noticed this strange habit. 
Don't you think you're wasting your time, asked the journalist? You're so famous. Shouldn't you be doing more important things? I'm preparing my soul to write. Like a fisherman preparing his tackle before going out to sea. If I don't do this and think only the fish matter, I'll never achieve anything. (laughs) Silence, solitude, stillness in order to achieve the real purpose and meaning that he sought. Because without that, prior to writing, he had nothing to say. It's the silence from which we speak that gives us something really to say, brings meaning to what we do say. And finally, a wise man was asked, which example should one follow? That of pious men who devote their lives to God? Or that of scholars who seek to understand the will of the Almighty? Typical question, right? The best example, the answer was, is that of a child. But they replied, a child knows nothing. It hasn't yet learned what reality is. You're all quite wrong. For a child possesses three qualities we should never forget, said the wise man. They are always joyful without reason. They are always busy. And when they want something, they know how to demand it firmly and with determination. (laughs) Simplicity. The smallest child has it. We negate it, dismiss it, because they don't know what they're doing, right? But integrate it. Start to see the value of silence, solitude, stillness, simplicity. Start to add it into your life just in the daily things that you do and see what follows. Let's pray. Father, you are the silent one. We wish that you would speak so much and often and tell us, even if it's not what we want to hear, tell us something, but you're the silent one. You are alone in your own relationship, solitude of the Trinity, solitude of the connection of presence, the stillness and the simplicity. You are all of those things, and you are our goal. So help us to see those four traits as the platform, the launch pad, to our goal of becoming more and more one with you. Help us to remember them when we're lost in our compulsions so that we can stop and we can take a breath and we can come back and try to introduce it more and more again in our moment-to-moment lives. Help us to learn to be comfortable and just to love what silence, solitude, stillness, and simplicity can add into our lives and to be amazed at where it takes us and enjoy that too. Father, thank you again for everything that you have shown us and everything that you are that continues to show us how this life can be lived in a completely different way that will fulfill all of our dreams and aspirations and desires. And thank you for loving us and continuing to be with us. Never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.